I think there is going to be a proliferation of applications where, you know, we have already, I mean, the, 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 the main ones we know, obviously, Chat GPT, Mid Journey, there is the new kid in town, Sora. Uh, Sora. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when you look at what is happening in the background, that is a lot of inferencing, that is a lot of computing. And um, we need the architecture to constantly get better over the course of time. And uh, mm -hmm. with the inferencing market, kind of like a secular part of the overall AI theme, mm -hmm. I think um, stands uh, to benefit. I mean, yeah, NVIDIA will stand to benefit as this sort of remains like a secular theme within its overall um, different revenue categories in the coming quarters, in the coming years. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. My guest today is Amrita Roy, a fellow Substack author and an expert when it comes to connecting the dots between macroeconomics and technology and upcoming trends in the world. So we had a great conversation today, of course, about the NVIDIA earnings, everything to do with NVIDIA and AI. And Rita gave us her outlook for this new and exciting technology. And from then on, we also talked about the more general macro picture and how this all fits in. Are we going to see inflation or deflation? What are the potential risks for the US economy, namely commercial real estate? And how is it that other economies such as Germany, UK and Japan are entering into recession while the US is doing so well? So as always, guys, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Please go ahead and follow Amrita on Substack if you're not doing that already. And like, share and subscribe to The Pragmatic Investor. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome back to the show by popular demand. I'm Rita Roy, pragmatic optimist. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Happy to be back. Awesome. Well, I know that people really enjoyed the last interview we did. So here we are again. It's time to give the people uh, what they want. So first off, of course, we're talking now. Uh, of course, one week after the NVIDIA earnings, more or less, they released those earnings. And of course, it was a very anticipated moment for the market. Everyone is talking about AI, NVIDIA. And, you know, the stock just keeps chugging along. Of course, we saw them. Everyone was expecting the company to do very well. Um, they did even a little bit better even. And, uh, you know, the stock keeps chugging along. I mean, despite <laughs> defying perhaps all kind of laws of valuation. Um, yeah. But, of course, you know, th th there are some reasons behind this. I'd love to get your take, uh, first of all, of course, on NVIDIA, those earnings in particular, and then maybe just more generally in terms of the global uh, AI narrative, how you feel about this uh, kind of AI narrative and and this investment thesis. Sure. Uh, lots to unpack there then. Um, all right. So NVIDIA had a lot of expectation going into the earnings season. There was a lot of bulls on one side, bears on the other, and yet NVIDIA came out stronger than ever. Uh, beating estimates on both revenue and earnings and setting higher than expected guidance for the first quarter of FY24, I believe. Um, now, when it comes to a uh, NVIDIA at a high level, we are thinking about the whole CapEx boom in AI, and that's correct. But actually, what is really interesting to me uh, when it comes to NVIDIA is when I look at its history, sort of how over the course of the last two decades, it saw its GPU application sort of like expand. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I'll sort of just give you a little bit of a history because it's really fascinating because the company was founded in 1993 and between 1993 to 2000, it's sort of application of GPUs uh, stuck to accelerating the graphics rendering part. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it. And now between 2000 and 2010, with the pr proliferation of internet, gaming becoming super popular, the application of GPU just widened as there was a higher demand for, you know, GPUs for uh, designing faster um, simulations, immersive uh, visualizations, things like that. Come 2010, 2017, or 10, 20 really, the application mm -hmm. space of GPU further widens with the advent of cloud computing and crypto. And now from 2020 to now, right now, we have a further expansion of, if you want to call it the TAM, the total addressable market, where we now have AI and crypto. And the growth story of NVIDIA just doesn't take a stop. Like it's continually growing. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, when you talked about the whole um, NVIDIA earnings, of, of course, it was a beat. And um, it's related, obviously, to the much higher than anticipated boom in the AI CapEx cycle. And that has sort of led to uh, demand surging much higher than anticipated. So there's a supply chain constraint and NVIDIA sort of sit, it sits at this market leader position where it's taking mm -hmm. advantage of the whole pricing power that it now has. Uh, the question uh, that comes to mind, obviously, is how long is this CapEx cycle going to continue? Um, and if I look at sort of the past, um, NVIDIA usually used to have like maybe four or six quarters of growing revenue where its stock would, would would just go up. And then it just had a cyclical correction with maybe two to three quarters of like, you know, when, a, when the CapEx cycle sort of um, flattens mm -hmm. out. Now, this time is really interesting because uh, AI, the whole, you know, the training, the LLM models, which comes with, um, you know, having the capability to do accelerated computing comes in actually two stages. Uh, the first is the training part. And the second is the inference part. The mm -hmm. training part, uh, NVIDIA is a leader at the moment. And the training part, I just want to like just uh, highlight. It's basically like you're training the models mm -hmm. to uh, recognize patterns. Like right. this is a triangle, this is a square, this is a circle. The inference market, on the other hand, is when the AI models or the LLM models, large language learning models, um, actually go and apply that knowledge in a broader space. So whether it is in the form of a chat GPT, or in the form of a mid-journey, text-to-image, um, or the most recently uh, um, launched Sora, for example. So the mm -hmm. inference market is actually really, really huge uh, with no uh, point of saturation at the moment. So CapEx cycle is booming, which is good. We don't know when the CapEx cycle is going to end. We also know that AI comes in sort of two core stages, training and inference. Mm -hmm. With the training part, I have a feeling that it's uh, that it's sort of cyclical in nature. So I'm I'm I, I'm guessing like you know maybe we will have a spike this year, maybe into next year. Not I mean we are already into 2024, so we'll have a spike. We have a, we will have a strong year this year, and then we'll sort of like taper off before again, mm -hmm. sort of picking up again. But the inference market is actually where probably the real growth lies. Mm -hmm. um, and the good thing about this uh, report apart from NVIDIA obviously beating on all um, areas when it came to revenue, gross margin, operating margin, free cash flow and whatnot, was that its um, inference revenue is now 40% of total revenue. So that is actually super, super optimistic. And I think mm 
uh, as long as um, I mean, and there there are going to be probably a lot more players coming into the inference market, in my view, in my sort of investor lensed view um, over the coming years. So I think that is sort of where the optimism is currently that the inference market is booming. Mm -hmm. um, looking forward, um, is there you know reason to keep on being optimistic about Nvidia? Well, sure, at the current pace of its continuing to beat revenue guidance and earnings estimates, why not? And the company also sets guidance on a quarterly basis. So we just, you know, we're, we're sort of like riding the boom at this point with not knowing really when exactly or how things exactly things might sort of taper off, if it does, and how it will look like. Also, I would like to point out that NVIDIA is what, forward price to earnings ratio is probably around like 30 or 30, between 30 mm -hmm. to 35, which is not insane in today's market conditions of like heightened valuations. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something else to think about. Uh, but moving forward, I think there were lots of things that uh, its CEO Jensen Huang said, which I think I like. And then there are other areas which are sort of unknown unknowns for me, which I consider as risks, which I'll um, outline in a bit. So what are the four things, uh, maybe three, as I go through it, I'll remember, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Jensen Huang said during the call that I liked. First is that obviously we are seeing the accelerated computing sort of at a tipping point uh, and uh, the, the transition away from general purpose computing to accelerated computing, mm -hmm. right? And as, it, as we see this sort of shift happening, um, the company is also sort of diversifying its revenues across multiple different industries. So it's no longer just like sort of, you know, large, um, like hyperscaler revenue that is its mm -hmm. core thing. It, it, it is actually, it, it is contributing 50% of its total revenue, but the company is also diversifying revenue across, let's say, enterprises. We saw enterprise adoption this quarter, specifically from things like ServiceNow, Adobe, who are, um, you know, very rapidly sort of building their own co-pilots, for example, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, to release to their uh, audience base. And the third thing is obviously the consumer, um, um, like like companies like Meta, for example, like, and, and Meta is on this, I mean, since the company tanked from its all-time high, well, it, it has created a new all-time high now, but its prior all-time high had sort of like re- disciplined itself it has been just on a tear absolutely and so it is revamping its gen generative ai efforts you know to help the overall advertiser space so i think uh the company's uh, sort of um focus to diversify revenues across industries as the whole sort of shift takes place from general purpose computing to accelerated computing is something to be optimistic about a b uh, I also like the fact that the company is rapidly innovating on its um, hardware and software sort of product innovation cycle. So it has uh, um, it has it, it has accelerated its um, its um, GPU production cadence right now um, from two years prior to one year right now. Mm -hmm. um, and the third part uh, is this whole generative AI market. Um, and I think there is going to be a proliferation of applications where, you know, we have already, I mean, the, 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 the main ones we know, obviously, Chat GPT, Mid Journey, there is the new kid in town, Sora. Uh, Sora. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when you look at what is happening in the background, that is a lot of inferencing, that is a lot of computing. And um, we need the architecture to constantly get better over the course of time. And mm -hmm. uh, with the inferencing market, 
kind of like a secular part of the overall AI theme. Mm-hmm. I think um, stands uh, to benefit. I mean, yeah, NVIDIA will stand to benefit as this sort of remains like a secular theme within its overall um, different revenue categories in the coming quarters, in the coming years. Uh, that's sort of my high-level te- take on, 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 on NVIDIA. Now, there are obviously risks. I know that NVIDIA is sort of the market leader when it comes to its uh, H100 chips. Mm-hmm. I know there are lots of like companies that are starting to build their in-house chips. Like Microsoft, for example, I know started to build a networking card recently. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple other names. Um, plus, then there is obviously competition that probably is going to come from AMDs or the Intels, for example, specifically AMD. Uh, so there's a lot of unknown unknowns over there. That's one. The second part is, uh, um, the second risk, I would say, is just the macro cycle. I mean, we have seen this AI CapEx boom. That's great. But what happens when there is a downturn? Mm-hmm. If there is one, and there, you know, eco- economy comes in cycles. So we, there's just unknown unknowns and how much optimism is actually baked in versus how much optimism is just going to like run away when it doesn't meet expectations is unknown, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third thing is just the whole uh, idea around like, you know, ethics and regulation. And um, that's a whole like black hole on its own. It's a continuing process of, um, you know, of revisiting that topic and seeing like how things, how, how, how different players are sort of aligning with the ethics code of AI. And what does it even mean moving forward with such rapid innovation? Um, so I think these are sort of the three main areas of risk that I see. But um, uh, I mean, given where sort of the macroeconomic cycle is at the moment, uh, I understand why the stock is riding the way it is. And um, I, I was actually looking at it yesterday. I, I, I saw like, you know, the Max 7s, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Max 7s obviously include NVIDIA. And if you didn't, if, if a portfolio did not contain NVIDIA or Max 7 in as a cluster between 2012 to now, that mm-hmm. portfolio would be down compared to the portfolio which has Max 7 by 25%. So there is that there is that inherent, obviously, the inherent feeling of FOMO that obviously comes mm-hmm. with that. So the best way to that, that I look at these things that look at these things is that this is. Uh, these are like structural, secular stories that's, that will shape the next phase of innovation. And instead of just like, I don't know, betting on betting all your wealth on just one stock, it's best to just sort of like look at the space holistically and maybe do like a sort of a dollar cost averaging over the course of time. So mm-hmm. you can ride the ebbs and flows of the cycle and have the kind of returns that will, um, you know, that it that, that it does, that, that your portfolio deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's my take on NVIDIA per se. Um, I know you asked me sort of where I see the overall AI space. Uh, I'm going to take a pause here. I'm going to see if that answered your question before I move into the second part of the question. Yeah, absolutely. Let's um, let's just touch up on NVIDIA. Just as a quick recap, of course, you did mention that that transition kind of from CPU to GPU, that is kind of the wave that NVIDIA is riding. And I know uh, that CEO Jensen did talk about that in the latest earnings call. Now, I did think it was very interesting what you mentioned about the cyclicality, right? And of course, a lot of people would mention that, you know, semiconductor stocks uh, or the semiconductor market is generally quite cyclical. But you did mention, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you said that there's the cyclical part, 
associated to what might be the um the language learning, but then there was the uh, kind of pro-cyclical, more secular part related to the inference, right? So okay, so you so then you're saying that the, to that extent that maybe there's been like a shift in that to that in that regard, right? That we're not going to see that kind of more volatile chip market. I think so. I I, I think um, or at least maybe until like um, because there's so much innovation actually happening in this market at the moment with so many players and uh, well, there's there's excitement for the innovation, but there is also like mm -hmm. maybe too much optimism that is being baked into valuations, which is a separate issue. Uh, but I don't think uh, that this cycle is necessarily going to play out as sort of the boom and bust cycles as we have seen in the semiconductor space over the last, since its inception, really. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like there is a six, to your point, I think there is a cyclical part and a non-cyclical part. And as the space becomes sort of, you know, not consolidated as, as, as I, as I think, you know, sort of the hype slowly fades away, people have sort of a uh, understanding sort of a grounding really on mm -hmm. the uh, the pace of the whole thing that is moving at like I don't know at the speed of light I think there'll be like lots of new players that will come in and the co the, the competitive forces in this place might uh, be interesting to watch as well but for now it's definitely NVIDIA is sort of mm -hmm. uh, probably taking most of the mark like winner takes all kind of a stands at the moment, which is true for pretty much all of the Mac 7s, if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. It, it'll be interesting to see again. I think it, it seems very clear now that, you know, NVIDIA is the king of the hill. Somehow it wasn't so clear two years ago. Maybe, you know, in two years we'll be looking back and someone will be saying, oh, well, of course someone was going to come in and take some of NVIDIA's pie. We'll always have to see about it. But I'm also interested to know, you talked about the uh, different risks, for example, as a kind of more macro level. So if there was a bit of a downturn, obviously that would be a risk to NVIDIA. Would that be, let's say, a larger risk to NVIDIA than another stock? Then would you say that maybe because of, because NVIDIA does trade at those high valuation multiples that it would suffer more in a downturn or could it just, or could it just, you know, survive just based on, you know, because people still need all those chips. And even if there is a downturn, they'll actually do even better. Uh, yeah, well, if there's a downturn, the stock goes through a correction and sort of the whole story remains. I think it's going to be a great point to like add into the position. But to your point, like will NVIDIA uh, suffer more? The truth is, I, I, if, I, if I'm not wrong, the company is pricing in for like a 75% growth in EPS year over year. So it's price to earnings ratio of 35 actually consists of that expectation that EPS earnings per right. share will go 75%. Mm -hmm. If that is hit, by any margin, the stock will fall. It's it's mm -hmm. it's basic sort of uh, linear math. Um, so so that's that. But um, yeah, I mean, should the stock fall, but the overall story of AI mm -hmm. remains like like we saw basically in 2022 when all the Mac sevens fell um, tremendously, like taking out what like close to four ish trillion dollars uh, trillion dollars away from the market cap. It mm -hmm. all came back boring in 2022, sorry, in 2023. Um, and ultimately the reason some of these companies or the Mac 7s in this case came back roaring in 2023 was because it, ha it, it operates, it, it has just fantastic operational performance metrics. Like, uh, you know, these, these companies are able to, uh, they have pricing power. They're able to convert that operating margin into free cash flow. They have cash buffers and, just generally, like, you know, most of these Mac 7s you see are the winner takes all 
kind of a moat to it. So mm -hmm. I think as long as th these sort of characteristics remain, any downturn is a moment to uh, uh, to probably bulk up your portfolio allocation towards NVIDIA specifically mm -hmm. in this case. Right, that makes sense. And going back to kind of the uh, broader picture of AI, would you do you believe that there's any kind of so we've seen this narrative kind of plowed before, right? I mean, a few years ago, you know, everyone was super excited about electric vehicles. Now Tesla is probably, you know, getting quite a lot of hate from investors. It's been doing nothing for a long time. A lot of those more speculative Chinese EV companies, you know, in the absolute gutter, um, unfortunately for, for me and some of my investments. Um, obviously, to an extent, we saw that with crypto a bit as well, you know, like, oh, at some point, altcoins and blockchain was going to be the new thing. And I think like always, it's that kind of thing, like, well, these are great technologies, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Is there a degree of that happening? Because also, I see a lot of, you know, NVIDIA, for example, is investing in a lot of AI companies. I mean, I mean, would you expect at some point to be some kind of consolidation here and maybe kind of a little bit of pullback, at least in that kind of AI hype? Um, it's a really good question. Uh, I think for now, if you really look at where the value of AI is accruing, it is ac actually accruing to the producers, the technology. It is not yet actually properly accrued to the people who mm -hmm. are using it, to be very honest. Yeah, there are lots of AI startups that are coming up, uh, which some of them I know of, some of them just like come up almost on a daily basis. Um, doing something in the space of AI or just like green AI washing it uh, somehow. Um, don't know. Uh, I would also like to point out that um, I, I I know that VC spending in AI is not near, is, is not back to its previous highs, if mm -hmm. I am right. Yeah, I think that's that change. Well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that might change this year. Uh, if interest rates fall and the whole sort of deal making, VC spending, the whole market sort of again, mm -hmm. mushrooms up. But that's something interesting for me as well. But um, yeah, so, so 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 to my first point, like, you know, right now we are only seeing, we are primarily sort of seeing the value accrue to the producers of the technology or the infrastructure layer. Mm -hmm. It has not really sort of uh, come down into the application or software layer just yet. And I think there is tremendous value in that. There's going to be a ton of, there's going to be a ton of companies that will pop up Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I think ones with sort of real competitive modes or sort of um, most importantly, balance sheet um, rigor, despite being startups, will actually stand to uh, benefit. Mm -hmm. Because I also believe that this decade will all, uh, will of, of macroeconomy will not be sort of this very, very low interest rates, low inflation kind of a scenario. This decade will be one where interest rates remain at higher levels and inflation sort of just keeps coming back up again mm -hmm. with AI possibly like clamping down with productivity gains. Um, but that's sort of my take. So I think uh, balance sheet rigor, balance sheet rigor and um, um, sort of uh, being able to convert your revenues into uh, operating margins into, op into free cash flow is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, I also uh, think that, I mean, I, I'm actually like, uh, I think in the consumer AI space, I think there is a couple of like, you know, interesting shifts that may happen personally that I sort of like read about or curious about. Mm -hmm. And I think like um, when it comes to consumer AI, um, there's probably a lot of value that can happen at marketplaces or at markets that sit at the intersection of like high consumer friction and high personalization. 
And what are the industries that sit there? Like things like tutoring or um, fitness or therapy, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, your tax filing, for example. Mm-hmm. So you have either an in-person tutor, for example, who charges you $50 an hour. And on the other hand, you can use Duolingo to teach you math or English for an hour. Mm-hmm. You pay a subscription, you uh, sort of... Uh, redo the math for an hour and it turns out to be like 50 cents an hour. So you have the in-person experience, which is costing you $50 and like the app experience that is like 50 cents. There's a surplus of like $49.50 over here. And I feel like as we progress through time and more sort of AI native apps come in, a lot of that surplus can actually be possibly uh, realized, not maybe all of it, but maybe some of that. Uh, so there's uh, maybe some of that. Uh, yeah, surplus will be realized with, and 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 that's that's an interesting uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, area that I think is uh, worth looking into. And the other thing that I also look at is sort of marketplaces and the evolution of marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you we we started off with like yellow pages back in the '90s or when not. Then we moved to the internet marketplaces, which where you have Amazons, Ebay, Zillow's, things like that. Then we have mobile marketplaces where we have things like DoorDash or Uber. And now we have this unknown called AI marketplace where we might see a lot of like AI native companies once again, like, you know, um, innovating on the, on that space. And uh, there's, it's, it's just a really in- interesting space to watch and see how value and surplus accrues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I appreciate you. So that was going to be my next question, kind of highlighting those kind of other areas where possibly one can invest. It's interesting. You did mention Duolingo, which is, of course, a uh, publicly traded company. Uh, but you did uh, write about them on Seeking Alpha uh, in a not so flattering way, I will say. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, I did put a sell on it. And the stock was, I think, around like 210 and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, um, I think Seeking Alpha is more like sort of immediate, uh, short-term focused uh, horizon. So mm-hmm. I, I I do think there's going to be like, you know, the stock's not going to move anywhere. But I, I do I do like the fundamentals. I think the fundamentals are solid. It's just mm-hmm. the valuation too steep. Not going to have a high allocation to it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, valuation is is going to become important at some point, if not, if not now, you know, at some point it will. And I wanted to get then into the kind of general macro picture again, because you did kind of cover that a little bit, your expectations for inflation uh, over the long term. And of course, over the shorter term, we have had that uh, narrative basically shift quite a bit. Obviously, after that last CPI report, people once again uh, afraid of inflation. Uh, What is your outlook for 2024? What do you think is kind of uh, pushing the needle in terms of inflation and uh, what do you expect? Sure. I think we have entered a very interesting stage. I think the last time we talked back in November, I said inflation, there are inflationary forces um, that are just secular in general at this point with like high fiscal debts, Mm -hmm. aging population and whatnot. But I said in November that inflation is going to drop from current levels. It did. And then right now it is like not back to the Fed's long term target, but sort of again starting to reaccelerate. Is this again Mm -hmm. sort of a new cycle that remains to be seen? Uh, so to just uh, backstep a bit, um, we actually went, just to recap historically, we went from a period in 2020 of excessive, um, of, of highly accommodative Fed with a high fiscal deficit, Feds uh, upping their balance sheet size to fight the COVID pandemic and the whole situation to 2021, 
where uh, fiscal fiscal stimulus dropped a bit, but the Fed remained accommodative. Inflation started to rise, but the Fed was like, this is transitory. To 2022, when the Fed was like, oh no, we messed up. Inflation is not in, uh, not transitory. It is very much in the system. So we're going to come at it hard. And they had the most harshest, most aggressive rate uh, hiking cycles since the Volcker era. And since mm -hmm. then, we have obviously um, hiked interest rates 11 times. We have reduced balance sheet, yet maintained liquidity at solid levels, which has enabled the stock market to reach new highs. And the 2023 story was essentially about the, the tug of war keeping uh, forces equal at both ends when it came to like maintaining liquidity conditions mm -hmm. as is uh, driven by the Fed bill issuance and the QT quantitative tightening that was happening. Uh, so where are we in 2024? Um, so one of the reasons uh, or three of the three of the main reasons uh, that the US economy still ha hadn't uh, fallen into a recession despite this really crazy QT and aggressive tightening was because A, consumers were flush with cash, labor market was strong. Number two, corporates, look at S&P 500 companies, like most of them have, um, you know, they have, they have, they have, um, they have debt that is not maturing anytime mm -hmm. soon and they have locked in very, very low interest rates. On top of that, a lot of them have solid cash buffers, which was earning interest income. So their net interest income was rising. And third, on the liquidity front, um, liquidity conditions remained flat thanks to reverse repo facility and the mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and the Treasury's bill issuance that soaked it up versus soaking reserves and causing a liquidity crunch. Mm -hmm. Now, all these tailwinds that worked in favor of the markets to, in 2023 is changing fast in 2024. We have consumers now where um, savings have depleted quite a bit. Labor market is is a tale of two ta tales, and we can talk about it later, but I'll just keep it at that. It's a tale of two tales. On the corporate front, there is growing risk of like, S&P 500 companies are all right. Big banks, mm -hmm. well capitalized, but there is just growing uncertainty about the whole like CRE space and how it's going to, uh, commercial real estate space and how it is going to affect smaller regional banks. Mm -hmm. And the liquidity front, we have um, the reverse repo facility, which is almost mostly depleted, which is no longer going to act as a tailwind to overall liquidity. Mm -hmm. So tailwinds turning into headwinds. So that should put us into a slowdown, right? Technically, yes, but unfortunately, un unfortunately we live in a complex uh, environment where there is just really high fiscal debts and that's not mm -hmm. gonna stop. So and that is going to continue to push you know, uh, upward pressure on the economy. We are already seeing sort of the diver how, how the divergence is affecting even stocks, for example, the divergence in monetary policy and fiscal policy. We have companies or banks like New York Community Bank, which has mm -hmm. dropped 40%, whereas you have American Express, which is soaring and soaring because, you know, certain parts of the population are still quite wealthy, mm -hmm. which brings me to my second point. Yes, the overall tailwinds are turning into headwinds, but at the same time, the discrepancies between haves and have-nots are widening than never before. Mm -hmm. um, 94, per, sorry, 50% uh, or the top 50% of US um, income households own 94% of the assets. And the other 50%, the bottom 50% own just 6% of the assets, but mm -hmm. more than 50% of the debt. 
So the wealthy or the top 50% are actually gaining from the overall sort of high inflation, high interest situation, whereas the squeezing is coming on the bottom 50%. So that's the second part. And this is, again, sort of the push-pull effect that is happening on the inflation front, which, is, which I think is going to continue onwards. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, I th- yeah, at the same time, uh, the last time we spoke, the bond market was like so, sort of all jittery, especially at the long end. Um, and since then, since the since since the sell-off, the bond market has calmed down. The long end has like, you know, dropped. Since then, it has gone up a bit, uh, but it's just driven and uh, it's driven by like you know, moderate um, inflation reports that happened in between before the last one, or moderate job reports before the latest one. Mm-hmm. So. The the curve the, the yield curve was bear steepening it fought, fell again and now it's again sort of like flattish, um, and this sort of like retightening retightening and then loosening of conditions actually has spurred up activity in the manufacturing sector. It has spurred up activity even in the lending. Overall, bank lending conditions are actually getting a slightly better. Mm. Um, and number three, like the overall deal making business is kind of back in business. We saw Capital One acquire or bid to acquire um discover for 35 billion dollars mm-hmm. and that's also sort of like showcasing that hey are we going to see a reacceleration so i think um overall um the easy part of the inflation uh is o- the uh, inflation controlling is over like from the peak in 2022 to now i think the easy part is over and now comes the hard part of like whether from here onwards it's going to get down to 2% and I don't think that's going to happen that easily given sort of the push and pull that is happening with inflationary forces and deflationary forces. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the problem comes is that the longer the feds keep rates at high at this level, um, risks to the commercial real estate space, which I wrote about, just gets larger and larger with potential mm-hmm. risks of a small, the, the regional bank contagion. Now, is that a risk that the Fed is going to take or is it going to just sit it out um, while keeping rates steady is to be seen. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at. Uh, I think, as I said, to, to summarize, I think the easy part of the inflation fight is over. It's the it's now sort of balancing the forces mm-hmm. uh, that is going to uh, be the tricky part moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I like the way you kind of make that comparison saying you know, the labor market is kind of story tale of two stories you know we could say the same to an extent with stocks as well kind of maybe seeing the whole economy to an extent and the whole market kind of uh, you know show that kind of big divergence occurring maybe to a larger extent in society right yeah and now in terms of the liquidity again i think it's like you point out very well all those forces coming in maybe reversing and to an extent though it does seem like now the federal reserve might kind of be caught right, between kind of a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I mean, uh, there's already been a lot of speculation, right, that the Federal Reserve is going to basically have to taper off QT because the reverse repo facility is uh, depleting. Uh, like you point out, there is also a possibility that, you know, if, obviously, well, if there is problems with commercial real estate, A, they will, they might lower interest rates, they might even, you know, extend another round of uh, emergency funding or whatever they want to call it this time. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something you see then? I mean, it, it seems like there's a risk here that, you know, the Fed might have to act, you know, even if 
like inflation comes a bit too uh, strong, they might still have to act, and that would maybe keep inflation you know higher than a lot of people expect, perhaps. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, if a CRE, if a commercial real estate um, issue occurs, whereby we see uh, small banks, regional banks mm -hmm. starting to have liquidity issues, I definitely think that the Fed is going to um, extend, re-extend, rename the bank term funding program to something fancier. I don't know, but essentially a form of that where you know the small banks can either have an avenue to get recapitalized. Or, you know, I'm also looking at like maybe, you know, while that is an option, I also see like banking con consolidation as another option. Yeah. These two things can happen uh, simultaneously. Uh, and, and yeah, like, I mean, at the end, uh, at, at, at the end of the day too, while it is not an immediate mandate of the Fed to uh, maintain stability in the banking system per se, like it talks about maintaining stability in price and, um, ins and ensuring uh, optimal employment, but should a banking crisis happen, 100% it's going to come and provide liquidity like it did, even when inflation was already quite high in 2022. And uh, yeah, markets Ooh. liked it. This, uh, yeah, uh, I 100% I, I believe that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I guess the other part of the uh, the puzzle right now is uh, the fiscal side, right? Which, of course, has become a much larger uh, part of the, the economy in the last few years. Of course, we have uh, election year, of course, fiscal spending this year ramping up as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you see that also basically uh, contributing or to off-put maybe some of that liquidity drain and maybe actually helping support markets? Of course, we do know statistically election years are a little bit better than normal. Do you see that as a, as a factor at all? Um, <clears throat> I do think that, well, ultimately fiscal deficit is a form of adding real economy mm -hmm. money. So as long as fiscal deficit is ongoing, it sort of boosts the economy up in some form or shape. Um, given that it's an election year, I think there are certain dynamics in play that I, I, I'm not an electioneer expert to be very honest. Um, but at the end of the day, like I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it's, there is some form of like a stimulus boost that comes mm -hmm. right before the election is, um, is due. Uh, the thing that I, there are a couple of things, actually. There are two things, actually. Uh, with if, 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 the, if, the, if, the, if the Treasury is issuing debt, in this case, let's assume that they're issuing Treasury, like the bonds, not the bills. Um, while the Fed has uh, technically uh, finished their QT, or it's, it's, it's still going to be a net negative for bank reserves. Mm -hmm if you know what I'm talking about, unless the Fed is actually doing QE, right. quantitative easing, whereby they're essentially buying off this debt from the treasury by mm -hmm. printing reserves, just the banks absorbing or the private sector absorbing this treasury issuance is mm -hmm. going to be net, net negative for liquidity. Um, I don't uh, necessarily think that, you know, the overall, can, like I, I believe that as soon as reverse repo is up to your point, I think the Fed is going to stop quantitative tightening right away. In fact, it might even start to like do a boost of like QE to sort of add some extra cushion, just not mm -hmm. to like have a repeat of 2019 repo crisis. Right. So that's that. Um, and the second part is that ultimately, 
uh, with fiscal debt, it's 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 this whole like sort of fiscal debt spiral at the end of the day, because when the feds keep rates high, it ultimately affects government. And when government debt as well, who have to, who has to pay more interest income? But unlike you and I, who can default and go bankrupt and shut our shop, which is terrible, the mm-hmm. government can still print money. And when it does, it's just like uh, taking on additional debt to pay the interest income. And it just sort of like just hovers in the system in a vicious cycle and keeping inflation very much active in the system. And it's it's very much a phenomenon that is going to take place in this decade. Um which is obviously, I think, something that the Fed is aware of, and it's going to stay on its guards. There are obviously deflationary forces, too, from AI and whatnot, but mm-hmm. this is definitely a story uh, that is going to remain throughout the rest of the history of, uh, not the history, throughout the, the next phase of the United States as it uh, continues to spend more than it produces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I'm uh, recently reading uh, Lynn Alden's book, Broken money, and of course, she compares the uh, the current situation. Of course, she's written plenty of articles about it to kind of to that. I would say that maybe um, wartime nineteen forties and fifties kind of basically a uh, basically fiscal driven kind of inflation, and yeah, basically that idea that spending kind of getting a bit out of hand. But funnily enough, of course, no no war this time. Simply um, simply other other stuff kind of getting in getting in the way there. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm actually looking to looking forward to reading her book. I'm yet to buy it, but uh, I, I I think she's just a rock star at the stuff she talks about and writes. So it's pretty interesting. And now, because we have seen on a more global scale, uh, for example, countries like UK, Japan, now kind of flirting with recession. Um, obviously, there seems to be some idea that the uh, that the economy, at least globally, is slowing down. Do you think that is going to affect uh, the U.S. at all? And if not, you know, what is kind of the differentiating factor here? How's you know how's the U.S. doing so well when we kind of see weakness in the uh, the rest of the globe? I think the weakness in the rest of the globe will definitely play a part for sure. But whether that will end up in a recession in the U.S. is a big question mark, in my opinion. And I think once again, it is sort of the inflationary forces I talked about before, driven by fiscal uh, dominance, driven by the haves who have so much spending power given the amount of wealth they have acquired and things like that, that's sort of just going to keep the economy like chugging along. So I am not of the opinion that the U.S. is going to like see a 2008 style recession. I think we may have the periods, we, we may have periods of rolling recession or maybe a mild recession, but that's sort of like where I sit. Um, when it comes to, yeah, like I, I think uh, what we are seeing in the is sort of in the global economy, it's just really interesting because in the maybe in the past decade or so or even before, the monetary policy of the U.S. would sort of dictate where the rest of the global economy would stand as well. Um, you know, given certain if 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 if, um, if, if the U.S. Fed is hiking rates and mm. let's say I don't know, India is not. Um, then you know, depending on like the um, the the GDP growth rate or the inflation rate and the whole FX uh, the foreign exchange reserve situation, um, it will de- de- you know the the health of the uh, the health of the Indian economy will be determined. So it was like always sort of this, the U.S. monetary policy dictates how um, other economies sort of react to mm-hmm. it and respond. Um, obviously, dollar being you know the reserve currency and used for trade uh, worldwide still in dominance. Uh, I think 
I was just thinking, I mean, I was, I was thinking about your question actually before I'm thinking how to answer it. Uh, I think there are five forces over here uh, and at the moment, I mean, mm -hmm. the U.S. macroeconomic situation governing how other countries react is like a stale story. It's partly true now. But mm -hmm. I think there's there most importantly now we are sort of seeing five forces and the interaction with uh, with, the, with these five forces that the dynamics and how each of these countries are sort of positioned in this whole realm is dictating like how each of these economies are are doing and you know sort of the uh, the prospect forward and those mm -hmm. five forces are a the aging population. Mm. Let's face it, like I mean, U.S. has an aging population. Europe has an aging population. China now also has an aging population. Japan has the world's famous aging population. India, on the other hand, is far better when it comes to an aging population uh, side. The second part is like the whole, like the idea of reshoring um, to risk supply chains, uh, mm -hmm. which can inherently be quite inflationary in the start. The third mm -hmm. part is to do with um, um, the the whole the, the whole area around energy security. Well, U.S. is mostly energy abundant to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't say energy abundant just so freely, but regardless, like we we saw, like you know, the high energy prices crippling Europe, for example, mm, right, yeah. uh, and the whole sort of you know move to net zero and what that exactly means um, is again like you know there are in, there there is maybe short term inflation there is short term inflationary and long term deflationary forces. The fourth thing is obviously AI and how different economies around the world are sort of setting themselves up in this whole race again to, to position themselves in mm -hmm. the next phase of the next uh, part of the innovation cycle. And the fifth part is fiscal dominance. Like everywhere you go in the world, you know, governments are most of the most for the most part, governments are actually uh, spending more than they're making, uh, more than than yeah, than they're manufacturing or exporting. Um, so so yeah, so out of the so the dynamics of these five forces actually determining where all these economies sit, and I think sort of where the current state of like Europe is with UK and Germany sort of, well UK has fallen into a technical recession, and Germany has been in contraction for I think almost two years at this point. Mm. It's because of the aging population, it's because of the energy security issue, and things like that. Whereas with China, we are sort of seeing a, what, a two-year, no, maybe two-year or more uh, situation of this prolonging uh, property deleveraging de that has just driven, driven away investors in bulk and the repatriation of profits. Um, and whereas, mm -hmm. like, we see with India, for example, who's sort of sitting in, right in the right balance between all these forces and seeing sort of the sweet end of the deal where there are capital inflows and things like that in the country, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, just alignment on all fronts to drive up technological innovation and competitiveness and things like that. So, so yeah, so, I mean, at the end of the day, to answer the question of uh, whether global weakness is going to affect U.S. Uh, to tip it into a recession, I don't think we're going to see, like, where major global economies are all going into recession at the same time. I, I, I think that that world is over. I think we are going to be, mm. we are going to be selectively seeing different global economies maybe having their own cycles and depending of obviously on the export import the whole trade de de surplus deficit cycle we may see some cyclical aspects in the u.s economy but once again i think there are the overall narrative around uh the overall forces of inflation that are currently present will not mm -hmm. will, 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 will you know will not make a recession 
to like 2008 quite likely in my opinion mm -hmm. absolutely i think that's a very interesting framework and you know kind of just based on you know those ideas that you put forth it does seem like the u.s could hold a kind of a competitive advantage there right i mean the u.s yes obviously aging population but you know despite their reputation for building walls they do take in more immigrants than any anyone else uh, on the other hand, they do still have the best, you know, companies. Of course, they're well positioned to benefit from AI. Fiscally, obviously, being the reserve currency, still kind of, you know, enjoying basically the ability of uh, funding themselves quite a bit. So it does seem like, you know, the stage is set. I think Warren Buffett in a, well, not the, not this latest letter, I think the one before that, his shareholder letter, he talks about the American tailwind. So he kind of, you know, obviously well known for betting on America. Would you say that's maybe something that you think could uh, continue in, over the next decade or so, that kind of um, American tailwind and well, what we've seen really in the last few years, that kind of outperformance in the U.S. economy and, you know, to the point more U.S. stocks? It's a really good um, question. Um, will I see outperformance in the U.S. stocks over the next decade? Uh I think uh, sort of the, uh, you know, to, to answer your question on like the American dynamism and uh, whether, you know, the tailwinds of the American economy is going to keep it afloat despite mm -hmm. sort of the whole irresponsibility around the fiscal side. I think partially, yes. Um, there are risks, obviously. Um, I think especially, you know, as we, as we sort of move through the late stage debt cycle, mm -hmm. um, divergences in the haves and have nots, it's just going to create more and more sort of instability uh, when it comes to politics or when it comes to just like, you know, the society functioning in general. But, um, you know, when you, when you, when you look at it, um, the, the whole sort of the AI boom that we are seeing right now, a lot of it is actually focused, well, it, the, different countries are working on their own initiatives, but, uh, but there, there is the, the whole sort of move, um, you know, the whole, um, the realm of AI and the whole boom in AI that we are seeing is driven primarily, for now, by with you know by 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 U.S. companies, you know the open AI and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I think as that sort of pans out into like the next phase of the innovation, where it actually sort of creates productivity acceleration, where it actually creates jobs that we are not even sure exists today. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to just be a boost to the consumer morale, consumer confidence, and just the general wealth effect that comes with every like new innovation cycle, mm -hmm. where we see, you know, goods becoming cheaper, or lives becoming longer. And I think that the, the fact that AI innovation hub is still in the US, ha it has that sort of um, upper hand, probably in being able to navigate the economy in a more careful, but like, not like wrecking it, but like in a more careful, but like still solvent way over the next, um, mm. for the next maybe five to seven years, 10 years is a long time frame. There are lots of things that can happen. So uh, five to seven years. But do you believe that ultimately AI will be a kind of a leveling technology that will maybe break this current dynamic we've seen, right, of a uh, higher separation that it actually might, um, you know, actually serve to kind of level out the playing field to an extent or maybe the opposite um that remains to be seen um i mean right now <laughs> uh unlike the internet era though like in the internet was sort of like you know this is open source anyone can build anything on top of it you mm -hmm. look at ai 
the 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 holders of AI are still sort of the Mag sevens, if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. So there is obviously the central uh, the 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 central ownership over there, mm -hmm. um, which has its pros and cons. Um, that's something to think about. But I think in general, when I look at AI and the kinds of things it can do today, I think it's definitely going to um, unlock a lot of human creativity when it comes to like different forms of work they do. They'll be able to do more sort of impactful work, which is you know definitely good for the overall self-actualization realization that people talk about. In fact, I think Jamie Dimon, I think a few months ago, he said, that, oh, AI is going to like solve cancer, make us live for 100 years, and then uh, we're going to work like, I don't know, 15 hours a week or something. And I was like, the last point I'm not sh sure about, because like I, I remember reading something that um, John Keynes had also said that, you know, with the whole industrialization, um, human beings are going to actually work lesser and lesser. That is not true. As, 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 as yeah, um, innovation has improved and our lives have become faster and efficient and whatnot, but we are sort of, you know, just morphing into creatures where we are doing different sort of work to fulfill our life's purposes and things like that, right? So I think uh, on that front, um, it, AI is definitely going to allow human beings to, you know, do more interesting work, mm -hmm. um, do projects that actually matter versus, um, you know, sit down at a desk and do, I don't know, entry-level data jobs, which is mind-numbingly painful. I also think it will flatten management hierarchy, uh, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, as more and more, I mean, we're already seeing like a lot of companies laying off workers while they're not necessarily always saying that it's because of AI, the underlying implication is that. Mm -hmm. uh, and some companies are outright saying, for example, we are not hiring because a lot of these jobs can already be done by AI right. or things like that. So I think it's like short term, obviously, this is deflationary, this sucks. Um, you know, wages human wages, the wages of these workers are absent and hurts their life's livelihoods. Mm -hmm. But I think over the longer term, it's definitely net positive. Uh, with flatter management, more impactful work done, efficient work done, as we sort of progress through the next phases. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of possibilities out there. Also the possibility that we'll just end up killing each other. But again, that, that does remain to be seen. Like you said, it's a uh, food for thought. Yeah, yeah. I'm the pragmatic optimist. So I'm thinking about an optimistic way. Of course, there could be like all sorts of horrible ways that this technology can be used, which have been done before with technology. So uh, human beings are unpredictable. So you just never know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I thoroughly appreciate you coming on, Amrita. Uh, it's been great having you on the show again. Uh, before we uh, log off, please let everyone know uh, where they can find you on the internet and what they can expect. Uh, sure. So I write a substack, The Pragmatic Optimist. Uh, there I connect the dots between macroeconomics, investing, and just the overall trends in culture and tech to just form the big picture, uh, help you identify better companies, and just improve your um, financial and mental well-being. Uh, and please subscribe to my uh, um, substack newsletter, uh, which is The Pragmatic Optimist. And that is sort of where I am mostly at uh, at most times. Absolutely. Definitely subscribe to Amrita's Substack if you haven't already. Uh, once again, really appreciate you coming on and, you know, looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thanks. Awesome. Bye, everyone.